Soccer has been on my mind lately. <laughs> and not just because of the World Cup. It's been, it's been fun to get to see a little bit of the World Cup. But uh, because last year, about this time, we're getting my, my youngest son, who's six years old, ready for ASO again in the fall. And last year, I ended up coaching my son's team. And it wasn't because I was just chomping at the bit. It was because I got one of those emails. Some of you know how this works. You get the email that basically says, if one of you doesn't become the coach, your kid won't get to play soccer. So I said, all right, fine, I'll be the coach. And it was a lot of fun. We, uh, we had a great time. Um, but I realized that I, I came into some funny information um, when the season was almost over. I didn't know this until there were like two weeks left, maybe two games left in the season. Um, and what I found out was the dad of one of the other kids on the team, one of these other five-year-olds, um, had more experience in soccer than I did. Now, that's not necessarily saying a lot. Like, I did play as a kid. I played for five years, and the last time I played competitive soccer was in eighth grade, so I didn't make it to a super high level or anything like that. Um, found out this guy had made it to a higher level. He had played in high school. Not only had he played in high school, he had gotten a scholarship and played in college. Not only had he played in college, he won a national championship with UCLA while he was at college. Now, for me and my assistant, when we found this information out, what do you think was the first question that went through our minds towards this guy? Why are you not coaching this team? And it may have been because he wouldn't have had any patience with five-year-olds. I don't know. But, but it was so, such a funny experience to think like, well, so we've been piecing this thing. I'm looking at YouTube videos. I'm trying to figure this thing out. This guy won a national championship. And while the kids, I don't think the kids had any understanding or, or would have really cared. But, but if you set, them, set the, the options before the kids, or at least the parents, and you said, all right, we got two options for the coach of the team. Behind door number one, we've got a national championship winning player. Behind door number two... We've got a guy that scored one goal in five years of ASA. (laughs) Who are you going to pick? I mean, it's it's obvious. Obviously, you want to go with the person with greater expertise. You say, well, I want to learn. If I'm going to learn soccer, I want to learn soccer from somebody who was great at soccer. Just like how how we choose our schools or our colleges, where we say, all right, if if I want to learn business, I'm going to go somewhere where, where I can learn it from somebody who's great at it. Or if I'm, if I'm going to learn car repair, I'm going to learn it from somebody who's great at that. If I'm going to learn cooking, I'm going to learn it from somebody who's just an expert in it. We look for people that have expertise, and that's the greatest situation when we're learning a new skill or, or new information, and we can learn it from somebody that we look at and say, that's the kind of expert I want to learn that from. What we get to do this morning is we get to learn about prayer from Jesus. I just think probably for many of you, you've had different people in your lives who, who have taught you about prayer, or you've, you've seen it modeled, maybe through some parents um, or, or small group leaders or pastors or, or mentors in your life where you've looked at them and said that they really pray, and they pray in a way that I want to pray, and so you've, you've learned from them, and you've asked them questions, and you've looked at how they've modeled their lives. Matt said, as great as many of them can be as models to us, there is no model greater for what prayer looks like than Jesus. There's no teacher that we should be more just having our ears itch with the idea that Jesus could teach us to pray. And the passage we walked through this morning, just so you know, begins this way, with Jesus saying, this then is how you should pray. Jesus, the Son of God, 
And even if you didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God, if you read the Gospels, even if you weren't convinced of his divinity, you would still look at Jesus and say, that's the guy I want to learn to pray from. Because he's the one that no matter how busy he was, he was stealing away time so that he'd go and commune with the Father for hours early in the morning. This was a guy that, that when he prayed in front of other people, he, he showed such a familiarity with God and such a connection to God and, and a personal love for God. This is the person that we want to learn to pray from. And Jesus, in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, that this extended passage about what life looks like when Jesus is the king, King Jesus shows us a model of prayer. And, and it is a model. I, I want to say that clearly. When When Jesus gives us what's typically called the Lord's Prayer in the passage today, Jesus gives us not a mantra, but a model. If you were here last Sunday, you heard Pastor Gary talking about the whole idea that that Jesus warns against the idea of mantras and just saying a bunch of words or repeating something over and over again or or saying something magic and thinking that that's going to curry favor with God. Jesus says, that's not what it's about. There's actually a connection. There's a relationship with God. And what he does, instead of saying, pray these exact words, he says, pray like this. I'm going to give you a model. I'm going to give you a framework of how to approach prayer. As we get ready to get into this, I just want to say, um, my experience would tell me that there's very few, if any of us in this room, that are looking at the area of prayer and saying, when it comes to prayer, I am just nailing it. I mean, I'm just killing it. I'm I'm, I'm praying exactly the way that I think I should pray. I'm praying exactly as much as I think I should pray. My prayer life is a 10 right now. Very few of us feel this way. I certainly don't feel this way. Prayer has been something, I've shared this in different settings before, but when you think of kind of like reading the Bible and praying as two habits that are very important to to those of us who are Christians, Um, I I read the Bible a lot. Um, It's not necessarily, it, it is partly a habit that I've cultivated. It's also just partly an interest that I have. I like to read. Prayer for me is something that I've always wrestled with, and I've never said, yeah, yeah, my prayer life right now really looks the way that I would want it to look. So I'm excited to get into this this morning because God has been doing work in my life and moving me towards what he calls me to in prayer. And, and I want to say, for some of you, you might look at the area of prayer and maybe you don't pray as much or, or as, as fervently as you'd like to um, because you're just, you're intimidated. Saying, all right, prayer is talking to God. You, you got to probably know the right words. You got to know the right way. So I don't pray as much as I would because I'm kind of intimidated by prayer. And some of you might think, well, I'm not intimidated. I, I know that it's, it's God and he wants us just to talk to him. I'm not intimidated, but I've kind of become indifferent. I mean, we're in the U.S. Life is really comfortable. We got refrigerators full of food. We got air conditioning, even when the temperature hits 110. Like we're, we're doing pretty well. We're pretty comfortable here. So you may say, well, probably the reason I don't pray more is because nothing feels urgent. And so I don't feel desperate for God. And for some of you, maybe you don't pray as much as as you'd like to because you become disillusioned. Maybe there was something that you prayed for and prayed for and prayed for and prayed for, and then God didn't do. And you felt abandoned. And since then, you've said, I don't really know what the point is to praying. My point in saying this is just, when we come to prayer, this could be something that for some of you, you're excited, you're saying, all right, I want to grow in this, I'm excited for what's ahead. But for some of you, you may have some baggage also. And what you're going to see in the model that Jesus gives us is it's a model that invites us to respond to God and to interact with God in a way that is highly relational. 
in a way that's approaching a real person, not just approaching a habit that we want to cultivate in our lives. So we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer and broadly in three parts. The first part is a real quick kind of overview introduction. And then what most people see with the Lord's Prayer is there's two broad sections that it's broken into. So kind of one section just to introduce it and then a couple sections to walk through how Jesus gives us a model to pray. And I'll just tell you right now my hope for this. My hope is that by walking through this, we will not only feel more equipped, that we'll say, I, I can do this. I, I could pray. I, I don't need the magic words. I, I understand what I could do. We not only would feel more equipped to approach God in prayer, but we would feel a deeper desire to connect with the God of the universe because of how Jesus lays this out. So we're going to start, like I said, kind of three broad parts that this goes into. The first part's going to be real brief. The, the first part, well, maybe I won't talk really briefly, but the verse is really brief. Um, The first thing that Jesus tells us to do when it comes to approaching prayer is remember your audience. And this is with the simple phrase. Right after he says, this then is how you should pray, he says, our Father in heaven. He tells us who we're addressing. Again, if you were here last week, you heard Gary talk about the whole idea that, that Jesus was critiquing the hypocrites who were praying in order to get attention from other people. And praying in really flowery language and praying in order to have other people say, look how spiritual he is. Jesus says, when you pray, go in your closet, go be by yourself and pray. And Jesus is saying that there's no place for public prayer because there clearly is. Jesus prayed in public. All the apostles did that this was a common thing. The idea here isn't don't ever pray in front of other people. But the idea is if you're only praying in front of other people, you're missing something. There's meant to be a way that you're communing with God personally. What Jesus says is, when you're communing with God personally, remember who you're talking to. And remember that your audience isn't any other person. Your audience isn't even yourself or your self-evaluation of how well your prayer is going. You are addressing God. And when you're addressing God, he invites us to address God as our Father in heaven. I know that's a short phrase, but, but I just, I, I want to hit on what he talks about there. First of all, our Father. Some of you know Jesus was pretty revolutionary by consistently referring to God as his Father. It threw people off. It wasn't the way that Jews normally talked about God. They normally talked about God in, in much more formal ways. So when Jesus is walking around and referring to his father, it it made people think maybe he was a bit too familiar. But the powerful thing that Jesus does is he not only says, God is my father. He says, all of you get to approach God as our father. Now, here's something really important. Jesus is not saying every person in every place of every religion, of any faith, of any conception of God, they're all praying to to the same father. That's not his point here. He is speaking to Jews. He's talking specifically about the God that the Jews believe in. And that's not because God looked at all the different religions and says, you know, of all the different religions, the Jews were the best. They were the best at making up religion. They got it closest. It was only like 55%, but it was closer than anything else. So we're going to go with the God of the Jews and just make everybody pray like them. 
The reason Jesus is going with this is because God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And even though they'd wandered a lot from what God had said, they still contained the truth. Jesus even says this in John chapter 4 when he's talking to a a Samaritan woman and, and she's kind of debating some different beliefs with him. And he says, the Jews worship what they know because salvation has come to the Jews. So Jesus isn't saying here, any idea that you have in your head about God is pretty much the same as everybody else's or, or they all go to one father. He's saying, you are praying to the God who created the whole world. You are praying to the God who kept his promises to Abraham. You are praying to the God who made David king. You're praying to the God who brought Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. You are praying to that God, the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a specific God that you're praying to and you get to address that God as father. And the reason you get to address that God as father is because through Jesus, we get to be adopted into the family. Through Jesus' work on the cross to bring us forgiveness of sins and through his resurrection to bring new life and victory into the world, we have, as John says in John chapter one, we have the right to be called children of God because we've placed our faith in Jesus. And that means regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your age, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how moral you have been in your life, you get to refer to God. And I even like it that he doesn't just say, pray this way, pray my father. Because he could say that because this is, he's saying, go in your closet. It's just you. He still says our father. And I think, I'll, I'll tell you why I think he does this. I think he does this because when we pray, even personally, when we're addressing God one-on-one and we pray our Father, it's a reminder to us that we don't have a special privilege before God because of anything about who we are. I'm remembering the person who's most different than me in the world, who has placed our faith in Jesus and and been forgiven, is approaching the same Father as I am. Just approach God as your Father. And just a couple things about fathers. Um, First of all, a good father. Does a good father give his child everything the child asks. No, of course not. Because the good father knows things that the child doesn't know. Knows that candy at 10 o'clock at night usually isn't a good idea. You know, knows some different things. So sometimes God being a good father, that means that he's not always going to give us what we ask, but it also means he's not going to hold out on us. The father sent his one and only son. He's not going to hold out on you. Anytime God doesn't answer something that you ask for, it's not because he's being begrudging towards you. It's because he knows more than you do. Um, And the other thing is this, for those of us in the room that are fathers, there's sometimes that you're a father and your kid asks you for something, and maybe it's even something that's good, especially if it's the kid saying, I want to do this activity with you. I know it's 110 degrees outside, but I want to go out and, and throw the football. Those of us who are dads don't always want to say yes. And we don't always want to say yes because we have limitations. We have physical limitations or we have financial limitations. Sometimes your kid asks, yeah, can we go do this thing? And he's like, oh, I'd love to do that. That would be a great thing. We, we don't have the money. We are limited. But Jesus says, you're praying to our father in heaven. You're praying to the God who's close enough to us that we can call him father, but is great enough that he is in heaven, unlimited resources, unlimited power. You are approaching the great and mighty God who has also condescended to be willing to be your father and adopt you into the family. 
That's who you are addressing. Jesus says, I'm going to give you sort of the right address before we even get into the request. I'm going to tell you that when you pray, you are praying. And you can do it with boldness. You can do it with confidence. Not just to say, God, but to say, our Father. And not just our Father on earth, our Father in heaven. So he says, before you even move into the things you're going to ask God for, remember your audience. Remember who God is. And then for the rest of the Lord's Prayer, it breaks into kind of two big sections, which each have three requests. And we'll go over the first one here. And the the thing that Jesus is going to tell us in the first section is once you've remembered your audience, order your priorities. For most of us, when we pray, what we start with is the thing immediately on our minds. I mean, we might get, all right, hi, God, I need this job. Hi, God, I need to start feeling better. I mean, we're just moving right on to sort of health and provision and protection and energy and things like that. Jesus is going to talk about some of those things later on in the prayer, but he says, I want you to order your priorities. And so what he begins with is some requests that have to do not with things that we typically would be passionately longing for, but things that have to do, sorry, skip, things that have to do with God's ultimate priority. So look at these three things he says hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, by the way, it could be easy to miss this. All all three of these things, in fact, everything for pretty much the rest of the Lord's Prayer, it's all requests. This might not sound like requests, but really in, in the Greek, what it's basically saying is, God, make your name recognized as holy. God, Make your kingdom come. God, make your will be done. It's addressing God the Father and asking him to do things. But the things that Jesus is suggesting that we start with are asking God to do things that are not about our immediate concerns, but are about God's big picture priorities. This is something that's really important and something that I think most of us skip over because when we pray, we do have our immediate concerns. In fact, some of us only pray when we're prodded to do so because there's something really important going on. Somebody's sick, somebody's dying, um, a, a job is about to come through or be lost, there's some immediate concern. God is concerned with those immediate things. But if we really want to experience a prayer life that is not just about the things that we view as emergencies, then we can order our priorities and start with the things that are most important. So he says we start by asking God to hallow his name or to make his name holy. Now, in some ways you could be like, well, God's name is holy. God is holy. It doesn't matter what anybody says about God. He is holy. And and so you're not asking God, make yourself holy. God is holy. What you're asking is, God, will you make evident to the world your holiness? Will you make things so that people in the world respond to and embrace and praise you for your holiness, because that's something that's not happening all the time in our world. I mean, just think about what that would look like if if every human being was living in light of the idea that God, the true God of the universe, is a holy, good, just God, and we were praising him and we were honoring him. It would be a different world. Jesus says, start with that. Start with the dream. Start with the request. God, make your name be viewed and treated as holy 
in this world. And then he gives kind of this couplet, these requests that go together, your kingdom come, your will be done, which I believe is saying basically the same thing. We've talked about the kingdom a lot through this series because we call the series, uh, Who is Your King? The, the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, here's what life looks like if Jesus is the king. Here's how you treat others. Here's how you behave. Here's how you give. Here's how you fast. Here's how you pray. You pray this way if Jesus is your king. So when he says, your kingdom come, I don't think that Jesus is saying, we're, we're longing for Jesus' return so that the kingdom can be set up here on earth. We are longing for that, and that would be a a true thing to pray, and that's a great thing to pray for. In fact, the end of the book of Revelation has sort of the prayer, come Lord Jesus. But here he's not saying, uh, let's set up the earthly, or the the final kingdom right now. What What he's saying is, may the rule of God, may life with God as king be made more and more evident here on this earth. And you know what's gonna happen if the rule of God is made more and more evident here on the the earth, it's going to happen through people doing his will. So he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you don't need to be a super biblical expert to get this part. Um, How successful are the angels in heaven being at carrying out God's will? You say like 50% successful? 70, that they are utterly successful. God's will is being accomplished in heaven. Jesus is saying, pray in such a way that you're saying, gosh, the the, the attention and the worship and the obedience and all of that that's happening amongst the heavenly host, we want that kind of attention and focus here on earth. God, we want to see this earth become a place where people treat you as if you're holy. And we want to see this earth become a place where people look around and they say, well, so this is what life looks like if Jesus is king. And we want this world to look like a place where people are deeply concerned with doing the will of God and not just fulfilling their their immediate desires and indulgences. Now, here's the powerful thing about this. Um, Jesus is saying, pray and ask God to do this. So if we're starting our prayers, we, we can start our prayers by saying, all right, I'm remembering that I'm praying to my father, to our father. And I'm remembering that he's he's not just like the other fathers I know. He's my father in heaven. He has all power. He has all authority. He can do anything. And I'm praying that he would fulfill his priorities for himself and for the world. Because if God's name is treated as holy, if his kingdom is manifest here on this earth, if, if his will is being done, more people will come to the saving and the liberating faith in Jesus. They'll have their lives transformed and society will be transformed too. We're praying for God to do this. Now, the twist on this is that what God, in essence, says to us is the way that these things are going to happen is through our activity. You may remember back to chapter 5 when Troy was speaking on, um, on the passage about salt and light. And when Jesus talks about light, he says, let your light so shine before other people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, you know how God's name becomes hallowed amongst people? It's when believers in Jesus live lives that are so devoted to him that others look and say, the God who leads them must be a great God. You know how the kingdom of God is made manifest here on this earth? 
It's by the church, and by the church, I mean God's people. It's by the church living as if Jesus is the king, forgiving one another, being generous with one another, being generous with the world, being prayerful, being attentive, worshiping God. When we do these things, we manifest the kingdom. You know how God's will is done here on the earth? It's by us doing his will, following the example of Jesus, where Jesus, the night before the cross, said, not my will, but yours be done. And we say to God, I have a lot of priorities. I have an agenda for my own life. But you know what? At the end of the day, not what I want, but what you want, God. So when we're praying this, we're asking God to do something. But when we're praying this, we're also remembering what our calling is here on this earth. Jesus hasn't given us the calling to live as comfortable and prosperous as we possibly can and then die. But that's how many of us in the United States are tempted to live. Our calling is to live in such a way that people will treat God as holy. To live in such a way that somebody can legitimately say, that guy lives, that woman lives as if Jesus is the king. And to live in a way that other people say they're more about God's will than their own will. When we order our priorities, we're not only crying out to God and saying, God, do something big in this world. We're also reminding ourselves about what our own priorities should be. But Jesus says, you know, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into food and clothing and protection and provision and and forgiveness and all those things. All those things are a part of prayer. But order your priorities. First, pray for the things that are most important to God and then bring your needs to him. And and what we get to embrace in in the last part of the the Lord's Prayer, so he starts with the address of the Father in heaven. He moves on to the priorities. And then he he gets into kind of the request that we would normally think of. But he does it in a certain way. And what he calls us to do or invites us to do in this last part is to embrace our dependence. To embrace the fact that we are utterly dependent upon God for anything good to happen. And so here's how he goes. We'll, We'll walk through it part by part. Give us today our daily bread. Now, this is talking just about physical provision. So it's obviously with food, but this is also just having to do with the things that we say, all right, we need God to provide for us. God is the God of the universe. If he doesn't take care of us, if he doesn't give us food and clothing and and money and all of the things that we need, we, we won't be taken care of. Now, quick question. How many of you, maybe within the last month, have prayed these words, give us today our daily bread? Yeah, many of you have prayed. We, my, my wife and I pray, um, pray the Lord's Prayer with, with our youngest son every night before bed. We say it together. So there are many of us that, that pray these words. But just think about, when was the last time that you prayed, Father, give us today our daily bread, and genuinely were thinking, if God doesn't do something, I don't know how I'm going to eat today. That's not a familiar experience for those of us living in the United States in the 21st century. But it goes back, it harkens back to the early Israelites after they came out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they didn't know how they were going to eat. They didn't know how they were going to be taken care of. And so God said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to bed tonight. And when you wake up in the morning, you're going to find bread on the ground. And they woke up the next morning and they had bread on the ground. And some of you know, what did they call it? They called it manna. Anybody know what manna means? Yeah, a bunch of you do. It means, what is it? So how do you like that? The Israelites came out and they were like, what is it? And they said, let's just call it, what is it? For the rest of time. Now here's the interesting thing about the manna. God certainly had the capability. God is the God of everything. 
God certainly had the capability to just give them all of the bread that they would need for the rest of their lives, or at least for the rest of the month. But instead what he did is he said, tomorrow you're going to wake up and there's going to be bread. Get enough bread for the day for each member of your family. Don't save any of it. Don't take any extra and don't save any of it. And then the next day you're going to get up and I'm going to give you bread for that day. And the next day you're going to get up and I'm going to give you bread for that day. And some people didn't quite believe God. And so they saved some of the bread from the previous day. And when they woke up the next day, the bread was rotten. God said, you can't mock God. You can't thwart God. God's going to do what God's going to do. And we can look at it and say, why would God do it that way? Why wouldn't he just give them a whole bunch of bread? And I think it's pretty clear that what God was doing was he was teaching. He was using this physical lesson to teach the Israelites about what it looks like to walk in utter dependence upon God. To remember that day by day, you need him. And I know for for most of us in here, maybe all of us, but at least most of us in here, we are not right now thinking, how am I going to eat after church is out? But what we can remember is that if God decided he was going to take away all that we have, we would then recognize our utter dependence upon him. And just look at this also. Jesus doesn't say, um, and pray, give us today our 401k. He says, give us today our daily bread. I'm not somebody who thinks there's anything wrong with retirement saving or long-term saving. I, I don't think that there's anything wrong. I think there's, there's great wisdom in that. Um, if you read Proverbs, there's, there's great wisdom spoken about in that. But what I want us all to remember is that if later today there is a problem with the stock market and we all, all of us who are saving for retirement, utterly lost our retirement... That'd be bad. We'd be bummed out. That'd be bad. But you know what it wouldn't be? It wouldn't be an abdication from God on his promises to us. God hasn't promised us a comfortable life for the next 40 years. God asks us to pray to him for our daily bread. Desperate. I got to move on because there's more in this. Um, verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts. Talking about sin as debt that we have against God. Forgive us, God. Some of you know about debt forgiveness. You went to school and then you did something where where either you taught in the inner city or or worked some clinics as a doctor um, and you ended up getting your debt forgiven. Forgive us our debts. God, we've sinned against you. We have debt against you. We've, We've racked up something. Somebody needs to pay the price. But we are claiming the sacrifice of Jesus and asking that you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And some of you might be thinking, well, but because of what Jesus did, don't we already kind of have the guarantee that we're forgiven? I mean, don't we already know that God has forgiven us even if we don't ask for it? So yeah, absolutely. If, if, if it was dependent upon us to name every sin that we committed in order to be forgiven by that, for that sin, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Does anybody in here remember every sin that you've committed? If you do, you're probably super godly because you didn't have that many. I don't know. We, we could never do this. It is, Jesus is not saying, well, you better remember all your sins and confess every single one of them because otherwise you're in deep trouble. What he's saying is confess your sins before God for the daily reminder that the only reason you can call him father is because he's forgiven you through Jesus. And ask for forgiveness because that's what you do when you're in a relationship with someone. If a man sins against his wife and and says something mean to her and doesn't apologize, they don't stop being married. The the marriage doesn't just end with that lack of apology. But there's probably not a lot of harmony in that home. Jesus is saying, 
God is your father. Confess your sins to him. Receive forgiveness from him. Have the reminder that your guilt is taken away. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, which leads, there's this sort of addendum that I'll address now at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right after verse 13, where he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is, all right, if you're a Christian and then somebody does something mean to you, and you don't forgive them, or at least right away, you, you, you don't right away respond and forgive them, then you're out, you're no longer a Christian, and you got to find your way back in. That's not the idea here. But I think what Jesus is saying is that forgiven people forgive other people. If you've received grace, you extend grace. So if you're not forgiving other people, that may be a sign of something much deeper going on. And on top of that, There are people who will be left out of heaven. There will be people who will miss out on salvation specifically because they decided I'm not going to bow my knee to any king who makes me forgive her or who makes me forgive him. I'm not doing it. Jesus says forgiveness is paramount. God forgives you and you forgive others. And so you go to God in that desperation, in that utter dependence, saying the only reason I can come to you, the only reason why these sins aren't going to condemn me at the end is because of your forgiveness. And finally, in verse 13, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. After addressing the fact that we have sins that we're bringing to God and asking for his forgiveness and his cleansing, it's also saying, and and you're also looking ahead and you're saying, I don't want to keep doing these sins and I want to walk with God and I want to obey God. But you know what? There's an enemy out there and there's a lot of temptation out there. And God, I, I don't see any way that I survive this unless you step in and lead me to victory. And it can be confusing because you can say, well, lead us not into temptation. Does that mean God is in the habit of leading us into temptation and we have to ask him not to? And I don't think that's the deal. I think the deal is that Jesus is saying, without God rescuing you, protecting you from the temptation of the enemy, you will fall. You're dependent on him for food. You're dependent on him for forgiveness. You're dependent on him for victory. I have a thing that happens um, every time my wife goes out of town for like more than 10 hours. Um, And I've gotten a little bit used to it, but it still cracks me up every time. And so a couple months ago, she took our youngest son and went up to to Oregon for like three days. And and so here's what happens to me. Um, I I do dinner. And so with my two oldest sons, you know, we did dinner. and, And afterwards, you know, I kind of got things going and made sure they were getting going with, you know, taking their showers and getting ready for bed and all that kind of stuff. And then like an hour later, I walked back into the kitchen and I was like, why are all these dishes still here? (laughs) And then it occurred to me that my wife spends a lot of time walking around behind us cleaning stuff up and I don't even realize it. I was honestly shocked the first time it happened. I was like, oh, usually I come back to the kitchen and everything's cleaned up. It was this bizarre realization. Here's the point that I'm looking to make. There are probably times in your life where you really saw God protect you from temptation. But there may be things in your life that you say, you know what, I am a different man or I'm a different woman than I used to be. I I used to just be totally have my life run by my drinking and God has given me victory. Or or I had my life run by pornography and God's given me victory. Or, Or man, I used to lie all the time and God's really delivered me away from that. 
how much of that victory is based on the fact that God is constantly protecting you in ways that you don't even see? How many times is he running around behind you saying, no, 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 we're going to go over here. No, 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 this will end a disaster. I'm going to get you over here. God is the God of deliverance. And, and by the way, th- this is something that's so comforting because if right now you're in the midst of a battle and you're saying, I am really trying to win the victory over this area of sin in my life and man, it's just difficult. I just feel discouraged. I feel like I can't do it. What Jesus is saying is not only do you get to go to the Father and say, I blew it, I need forgiveness. You get to go to the Father and say, I'm trying to fight. I don't feel like I'm strong enough. I need you to help me. I need you to protect me. I need you to direct me. I need you to lead me not into temptation, but to deliver me from the evil one. You know, when we take all this in, part of the realization with the Lord's Prayer is to say, well, this is not an overly complicated prayer. This is not Jesus giving us deeply complicated and and precise language and telling us how to stand or how to sit or how to kneel. This is Jesus saying basically three things. And the first thing is, you know what? When you're praying, remember who you're talking to. Remember that you're praying to your Father in heaven. And when you're praying, don't just go right into the immediate. Take time to think about the big picture. Take time to think about the things most important to God and about his name and his message going out in all the earth. And when you do pray for the immediate things that are deeply on your mind, pray for them not out of a spirit of entitlement, but out of a spirit of dependence. And and in a minute, I'm going to invite us. We're just going to take a couple of of minutes at the end here just to do what we've been invited to do and and to pray in this way. Before we do this, I I want to invite you to something. Obviously, you know, when you think about, all right, there's a sermon and then there's application. All right, we just did a whole sermon about prayer. What do you think the application is going to be? Yeah, congratulations. So here's what I bet, but I'll get specific. Just some of you have a real robust, robust prayer life and, 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 and you, know, you're, you, you have habits and that's wonderful. If right now you're saying, oh, my, my habits with prayer are not really that consistent, I, I want more. Here's what I want to invite you to do just this week. I want, I want to invite you, first of all, to take the advice that was in the passage from last week. Choose a place, choose a time, set it aside in advance and plan to pray. And for some of you, you're like, I'm going to plan to pray for an hour. All right. Some of you are like, maybe not an hour, maybe half an hour. Okay. Some of you are like, is 10 minutes too short to pray? No. This is just like with giving when people are like, I don't know if I could give 10%. I'm like, well, 1% is better than 0%. Like just start. If you're looking at it and saying, oh, I, I, Jesus prayed for hours. I don't think I could pray for an hour. Or pray, pray for 10 minutes. Set aside 10 minutes. Set aside 15 minutes. Set aside whatever it is. Set it aside as protected time. And I invite you just to follow the model that Jesus gave us. Follow the model where you're addressing God and remembering who he is. Where you're praying for what's most important to him. And then when you bring your request, you're bringing them out of a spirit of dependence and desperation and not entitlement. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads right now. We're just going to take some time. And you can do this right now. Some of you may literally say the words of the Lord's Prayer because you're familiar with it and because it's helpful. But I want to invite all of you just in these couple minutes to pray through the model that Jesus gave us. Remember who God is. Remember what's important to Him and call out with the things on your heart in a spirit of desperation. And I'll close us after a couple minutes.
Father, we come to you as your people, and we come to you as your children, and not because we have somehow attained to something that would give us that right, but because Jesus died to bring us adoption. Thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you're a powerful father. We, we bring before you right now, Father, the fact that we want to be about your work. We don't want to be blinded by the immediate. We want to be about living lives that put the kingdom of God on display. God, show your name to be holy. Show your kingdom on this earth. Demonstrate your will and lead us as we respond to you in that. Father, we pray for your provision. I pray for those in here who um, are, are desperate for jobs and are looking for how the bills are gonna be paid. Father, I pray for those right now who are racked with guilt that you would extend to them, extend to them the experience of the forgiveness and grace that you give. And Father, I pray for those of us that are in the battle of temptation right now. And many of us probably are, even if we don't realize it. Thank you for delivering us and directing our steps. And we pray that you keep us from being in situations that would lead us to fall. You have our hearts. And we pray that you lead us to be a people who approach you in prayer, not, not simply out of something that we feel like we need to do, but because we're coming to our Father who loves us deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.